Hello and welcome to another episode of African Geopardy. Today, um, we are going to be discussing a very important topic and we have an amazing guest to discuss that with us. Um, obviously, my name is Ife, one of your hosts, and I'm recording from Creole in Scotland. And today, uh, Dr. Bel Habib, my co-host who is in Vancouver, is not able to join us today due to the time difference. But obviously, we're so excited about um, speaking to you with our guest. And the topic of our, of our conversation today is going to be making Africa work through the power of innovative volunteerism, a conversation with Dr. Richard Munang. It's really amazing to have you today with us, Dr. Richard. Dr. Richard Munang is the Africa Regional Climate Change Coordinator at the UN, that is United Nations Environment Program, UNEP. He is responsible for guiding the actualization of UNEP's climate resili resilient development strategy for Africa in a manner that ensures human well-being. He has led policy and ground actions, transferring continentally and globally sourced innovative climate action practices to countries which in the processes have helped build both human and institutional capacities to drive sustainable agro-industrialization for inclusive wealth creation. He has been a leading champion of research and knowledge for policy to ensure member states have the requisite scientific data and information to inform their policy decisions. He pioneered UNEP's first ever flagship Africa Adaptation Gap Report Series, which then scales scientific data to a more contextual continental information pack that directly informs policymakers on investments to make towards bridging the continent's climate resilience building gap. He has also been involved in shaping continental level strategic environmental policy position through technical support for the Africa Ministerial Conference for the Environment, Amazon. Dr. Munang led in conceptualizing, formulating, and creating an inclusive framework for mobilizing state and non-state actors for climate action implementation as called for in Section 5 of the Paris Agreement. A champion for youth, he has structurally guided and inspired over a million youth across the continent to turn their passions to profits by tapping enterprise opportunities for climate action, presents to offer tangible productivity solutions to communities and enterprises. This has been through an approach he innovated called innovative volunteerism. Which, has, which he has aggressively leveraged to engage young people to become climate action solution providers. Dr. Munang is the author of the book, Making Africa Work, 
through the power of innovative volunteerism, which is obviously going to be the basis of our discussion today. He has participated in a wide variety of research projects and has published over 500 articles in both international peer-reviewed journals and magazines. Dr. Monang holds a PhD in environmental, policy, environmental change and policy from the University of Nottingham in the United Kingdom and an executive certificate in climate change and energy policy from Harvard University Kennedy School of Government. I mean, it has been a mouthful to read this, but welcome to our podcast. And, and wow, thank you so much for, for even making time to speak to us today, Dr. Monang. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Wifi. A great pleasure to be part of this um, amazing platform, African Jopadi. Thank you. So to begin, I read your book with interest. And in particular, I was very fascinated by not only how easy it was to read, but how you actually was able to, you know, use a lot of African adages to sort of talk about your life and, and talk us through things that were happening around it. And so this also inspired me to sort of arrange the questions or what we're going to discuss in a way that I'm able to bring some of those adages that you use to the fore. And hopefully you would be able to sort of help us make sense of how the continent can actually move forward through innovative volunteerism. So to that end, the first question I'd like to ask you is an adage in chapter two of your book, you talked about making Africa work through the power of innovative volunteerism, which is a book. The adage noted, the words of the elders do not lock all the doors. They leave the right door open, which is fascinating. However, I'd like to know, I'd like obviously for you to share with us, and, and I'm sure our audience would like to know this as well. In the African context, would you say that our elders have left or are leaving the right doors open for African youths? Yeah, th thank you very much, um, Effie, for, for, for that um, uh, amazing introduction, as well as uh, the question and also for reading through the book. Um, in answering this question, what I think um, uh, the audience need to understand uh, is that I will um, uh, make a relevance uh, referring to scriptures, uh, where um, in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 9, verse 11, uh, we are told that the rest is not for the swift, nor the battle for the strong. Uh, but um, time and chance happens to everyone, regardless. Uh, what this means is that if you put things in perspective, what was, I was thinking as I was writing the book, uh, especially chapter two, where this adage is actually in, um, where most of us fell is that uh, we assume that there are no opportunities in difficulties. Uh, and nothing can be further from the truth because opportunities do exist uh, everywhere. And in most times, difficulties actually harbors the most opportunities because they present chances of making things better. And the second aspect is that we fail because sometimes we wait for elusive perfection. And maybe think that something we do do not have, or uh, because we don't have something, we cannot be able to seize opportunities. 
And that's a big misnomer because opportunities are seized uh, with what one has at that moment, not what they hope to have or wish they had. And that uh, which we always have is ourselves, is our skills, is our talents, is our mindsets. And this combined with the environment in which we are in is all the opportunities um, that one can ever need. So what, what does this mean in the context of the question you asked? If you look in chapter two of the, my book, I use that uh, within the context of my own story growing up in the mountain hills on the, the northwestern part of Cameroon, uh, a life of no glamour. It was not easy. Uh, I was born into poverty like millions across the continent, and that's not a crime. Uh, it was a life of minimal convenience. Yet these seeming difficulties uh, was the opportunity to learn some of the most critical lessons of respect and obedience to our elders, of selflessness, of hard work, of humility, of diligence. And it is from these that I had performed many and ended up landing in our capital city of Bamenda uh, for the first time to attend high school and later on went to university as articulated in the book, uh, where again, through the same values of uh, respect, humility, hard work, selflessness, I had performed and graduated and got an unpaid internship from where I also got uh, the much needed to work experience to apply for a scholarship, which I want to pursue my master's and PhD in the University of Nottingham in England. To cut the, uh, all these um, explanations short, um, the narrative is one whereby it means you must be willing as an individual, regardless of your situation or condition, to seize opportunities. Uh, the narrative applies to this continent that Africa's transformation will not be driven by what we do not have, but by leveraging what we already have. And the right door of the youthful population and all of us, regardless, empowered to be job creators and not job seekers, guided to diverse from thinking that someone else owes them somewhere to do something for them, and instead focus them to become more dependable. The right though of prioritizing to tap on our abundance of sunshine, on the agricultural value chain that is worth over one trillion US dollars. That is the point. So the overarching point is that nobody has closed the door for anybody. Everybody has got opportunities. And the opportunities we have today in 2020 are more than we had a decade ago or 20 years ago. We are living in the information age. So the point is that each and every one of us must leverage on what we already have and apply it selflessly to turn challenges into opportunities. Leveraging on what I sometimes call stubborn optimism. That is using what you have and giving your best because we must all believe in unlimited possibilities. Life is not a celebration. Life is not a place of ease. There will be challenges, but we must always seize the opportunities disguised in challenges. Aware of the comment you made, you talked about stubborn opportunism. And I'm hoping that by the end of our conversation, our audience would see how this stubborn opportunism have sort of reflected or can be applied in practical terms in moving the continent forward. So to that end, I'd like to ask, again, in the book, you talked about the late Thomas Sankara of Burkina Faso, 
who under challenging circumstances of ailing economy and minimal to no international support raised literacy level of his country from 13 to 70, 73% in four years and raised wheat production by 12%, making Burkina Faso food secure in three years. The question therefore is, can this feat be replicated in the continent today? If yes, how do we do that? Excellent. Um, th thanks again for bringing up this question, uh, Dr. Effie. Uh, I, think, oh, oh, I think I have thought um, on this a little bit in the first answer on what I call stubborn um, opportunism, uh, which is that the question to answer is simple, which is what is each of us as citizens of the African continent doing with what we already have to ensure we touch lives and create opportunities beyond ourselves and our immediate family? Uh, to expand it further, if you look across the entire African continent, every African country has got policies on food security. Every African country has got policies on energy. And these are great policies. Most of them are read through. Every African country has got a policy or a co that committed them to take climate action. And there is relatively stable social political environment in the continent today comparatively to the 1960s, 70s, and 80s regardless of what is happening. So the Africa of today is not that of the decades ago or the 60s or the 50s. There is near uh, internet connectivity nearly everywhere. But the question is, who do we expect to leverage these provisions for solutions? How many of us, uh, you look at the youthful population in the continent, over 60% of them, youthful, how many of us, youthful, whether at heart or in terms of age, it doesn't really matter how many of us use our time online to look for ideas on how the challenges we see around us can be solved. Uh, most would rather spend this uh, resource on social media entertaining themselves. That's what we see most of the time, and we need to call it spread a spread. So the point I'm making is that we have become, as a continent, uh, accustomed to deflecting re responsibility for solutions to others. Citizens look to government, Government look to others, development partners and, and many others. And all the while, challenges remain unsolved and keep on piling as we blame one another. Say government, not a do one. Government is not doing it. I will not do it. Government says citizens are lazy. So if we end up marking time in the same place as the challenges remain unsolved and keep on piling. This then takes me back to the earlier response that I said we must appreciate whatever little or much uh, that we have. And if you look in the continent, yes, there are enabling policies, uh, enabling environment, food security policies, energy policies uh, we, that each and every country have got. And we must then take upon ourselves as a personal responsibility to use it to devise uh, solutions that touch many lives. If you take a very simple example, which I need to practicalize this so that at least is relatable to the realities in which we're talking about today. Our mothers suffer the brunt of indoor pollution. In every community, they depend on charcoal uh, because they're using this charcoal to cook, they're using firewood, and this is unclean energy. Yet, converting agricultural waste, mostly available for free, this is for free, into fuel briquettes, uh, using very simple technologies to substitute charcoal will help, especially young people, tap into a 20 billion charcoal industry while solving the problem of indoor pollution. 
while solving the problem of climate change and land degradation, and while also creating incomes for themselves. So what am I saying here? I'm saying that there needs to be a different paradigm shift in thinking that solutions to challenges cannot always be done by someone else. Yes, governments are there to create an enabling environment and facilitate processes so that citizens, non-state actors can tap into them to solve these problems. But to seize this paradigm, first, we must be selfless. When we are talking, as we are discussing today, individualism in this continent and hatred, sometimes overshadow reality. And so we must become selfless. Our selflessness, doing something not only to benefit you, but to benefit others. And the second aspect is that each of us must develop a purpose, a clear vision of how whatever thing we do, whether we are at any part of, in any part of the world or in any organization or doing anything at our disposal, it doesn't really matter. We must be able to develop a clear vision of how what we already have and do can be applied to touch the lives of many. And, and this done in a way that can actually solve the problems in the community and at the same time also help advance progress, put money in more pockets, solve the problem of a mother in the village, but not at the detriment of the environment. And I actually call this an unborrowed vision, which is not the experimental visions we see around, where what is said we embrace without necessarily questioning whether it aligns to context, where we don't believe in ourselves unless external, it is something is externally validated, we can never believe that an African can do something for an African. So we are actually on a problem sometimes. So my point is we need stubborn optimism driven by purposeful, industrious, enterprising Africans. And this is what we all need to drive real progress for the continent. And that is the same spirit that I was trying to pass that message that if someone in a country facing island economy with minimal to no support could then be able to raise literacy levels to up to about 73% in four years and raise production by 12%, making the country food secure in three years. During that time, and today we have more opportunities than then, why are we not doing that? And the answer lies, we do not seize opportunities and we have not seen what we have because we think that we don't have anything and someone else needs to do it and self-validate. But whereas we just need to become stubborn, stubborn optimism is what we need to do and embrace so that we can have purposeful and enterprise Africa where progress is real, not the one we keep dreaming. Wow. I mean, your response is profound and, and I, I have to give it to you. I can, I can sort of sense it or envisage it in terms of the kind of stubborn optimism that Sankara would have had at the time. And also from reading your book, you actually displayed that stubborn up, um, optimism, how you were able to obviously go from the village to, I mean, now look at you, you're a role model for African youths. So thank you so thank much you. for answering the question so succinctly. Um, on that note, I'd like to also ask another question, which is elsewhere in the book, you noted, and I know that somehow you've hinted this in responding to the two pre previous questions, you noted that agriculture is the engine of socioeconomic transformation. 
And interestingly, so does the African Union, because they outline the vital role that agriculture can play in the sustainable development of the African people by 2063 under the Agenda 2063 banner. The question, however, is how can this happen in the continent when every day we see large-scale concession to multinational um, multinational companies large-scale concession is given to multinational and foreign companies to the detriment of smallholder farmers who continue to be displaced and made helpless and landless. Yeah, thanks again for that very important um, question, uh, Dr. Efi. The, the reality is that the multinationals come in because Africans have not taken up the space and they do negotiate contracts and are located the land. So Africans have not taken up the space. If you do not um, take care of your home, don't blame somebody who comes to take care of their home. In addition, these large-scale uh, concessions that um, you've mentioned are a way for most countries to attract investments and raise revenue. That's the reality. Uh, why is it so? Because most of the opportunities in many countries have not been tapped, so they need to look for ways to... Um, attract investment and raise revenue. Some countries are getting investments of up to about $2 billion. Uh, We see this uh, most of the time. But, but, but I think what we, need, what we need to focus on is how what is raised can be invested to unlock more accessible enterprise opportunities for the population, especially for the small uh, older farmers uh, in, this, in this continent. But this is just one aspect. Uh, the bigger issue that we need to look at here is the narrative of production that consumes many of us. For most of us, especially in the African continent, whenever we hear of agriculture, we think of production, production, production. And from uh, there, we think of land, 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 uh, that we need more land to produce more. And that is why the issue of concessions, for instance, uh, raises temperature and, and sometimes alarm. Uh, and this is unnecessary in my humble opinion. And I say this for this reason. Uh, do you know that um, Africa is losing up to 48 billion US dollars of what is already produced uh, by these smallholder farmers who grow up to about 80% of our food? And this 80% of the food they grow, most of it is lost uh, in the form of post-harvest losses because they do not have the storage uh, to store this food. They do not have the preservation to preserve this food. They, they do not have tools to add value, dry the vegetables like a mother in the village or to dry the cassava so that at least they can be able to process it into cassava flour. And the list goes on. Uh, do you know that to own land, to address uh, these very challenges, uh, you do not need to own land to address these challenges? Absolutely not. So the solution to these losses lie in value addition. And why am I saying this? I am saying this because the discourse in Africa, especially in the agricultural value chain, that has a lot of opportunities, sometimes get locked in the production part, and then the entire agro value chain is not discussed. And um, here I am not talking of some heavy investment to expand that entire agro value chain, but rather affordable, simple, local solutions like solar dryers uh, that can be developed locally using local available material that are even up to 200 cheaper than imported equivalents and are just as effective. And this has been tested as we're guiding you to develop across the continent. And the application has shown to increase earnings of informal uh, food traders who increase shell life of the harvest by up to about 30%.
So what is the point here? The point is that opportunities to tap expand the agro value chain will actually help the continent generate more revenue, put more food on more table, create more enterprises for young people, and even make these more older farmers and mothers in villages who produce this food have more opportunity. But what it takes to seize this opportunity is a selfless mindset, a selfless mindset focused on perfecting solutions that touch many lives as opposed to making quick money and also the willingness for one to retool their skill, especially the youth. I always say this, that everyone's availability, that is everybody's biggest ability is his or her availability. Avail self to solve problems, which is simply to avail self to improve and learn a skill to be able to devise these tools, regardless of the area of training and allowing to uh, offering solutions to add value to what is being produced uh, in, 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 in this agro-value chain that is worth one trillion. And, and, and I call this the engine sector because that is where Africa's transformation can easily happen. And no land is needed for this to happen. So the point is, the issue is not only about multinationals coming in, it's also about the laxity and lack of focus for the continent to tap on low-hanging fruits and inspire you to tap into areas that do not need a lot of intensive capital investment, but to spur more opportunities, unleash money that can be put into the pockets, but at the same time reduce the biggest challenge that Africa faces today, which is this post-harvest losses that is strangulating our mothers, not only to put money in their pockets, but also to lose the food that they sweat every day to produce. Your your response is, is so profound and it's actually absolutely very illuminating to actually realize that this is obviously the post-harvest production losses is a very big issue, which unfortunately, as you mentioned, um, affects our mothers. So it, it sort of inhibits even the continent's ability to be able to achieve its intentions of gender equity and equality because if women are losing this amount of money majority those are working post um have a sector obviously in, in the um smallholder agricultural sector it then means that the challenges of i guess the sustainable development of the african people by 2063 might be something that will be inhibited unless something radically different is done. And I'm mm -hmm. hoping that the right people are listening to our podcast and even if not the podcast, that they have had an opportunity to also engage with you because you have great ideas on this issues. On that note, I'd like to... Um, the next question is actually related, but this is in the context of climate change. The African continent is bearing the brunt of the impact of climate change. This is no secret. Even though it has the lowest rate of greenhouse gas emission in comparison to other continents. The extensiveness, and this is something you highlighted in your book, the extensiveness of the effect of climate change is such that the continent loses an estimated 68 billion each year to ecosystem degradation. Elsewhere, you noted that a rising Africa cannot succumb to purported challenges that's against its nature. And I think this is actually you reframing an African adage about the lion not eating grass. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I like that. 
the question then is how can climate change be the silver bullet, the master key that unlocks the door to us to accelerated socioeconomic transformation in the African continent? Thank you very much again, uh, Dr. Ifi. Uh, great question. Uh, this takes me back to the narrative issue I raised earlier, uh, that um, we must never ascribe to narratives without interrogating what they actually mean uh, for the context, because context is everything. And in this case, I'm talking about Africa's contextual reality. Uh, Africa is a negligible emitter uh, to uh, the um, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse emissions that are actually causing the changing climate that we face today. But yet, despite the fact that Africa is a negligible emitter, yet uh, Africa is bearing the brunt of climate change. And this is by virtue of its population being vulnerable. Uh, very, very vulnerable. Why is it so? And the answer is very simple, because um, the population of the continent uh, lack the resources. They need to afford the goods and services uh, that any human being needs to buffer against uh, the worst of the changing climate impacts. So if, if, if I just give a very simple example, uh, climate change, as we know, is global. Uh, the extreme variable, the floods, these are examples we see every day, floods, droughts, that our populations are vulnerable to, happens every day in the globe. It happens in, in Europe. It happens in the United States with hurricanes. So it happens in um, Australia where you see droughts, fires. So the, the point I'm making here is that the devastation is more in Africa. Yes, it doesn't mean that the impacts of climate change are affecting the globe, but when it comes to Africa, the very impacts are more devastating than elsewhere. And the question is why? The answer is one word, socioeconomic. Uh, just to give it another, if, if an early warning system gives indication of increased chances of adverse weather, uh, people will know uh, some will even tell, uh, like we are growing up, we are growing up, many of um, the people in our village, including my, my mother, who tell from the way they see the clouds moving that it's going to rain, it's going to rain heavy. Uh, but they are forced to remain in these conditions because they cannot afford to move to several grounds. If we talk of droughts, uh, many people in the continent die of hunger because they cannot afford to buy alternative food that are available in the market when they lose their harvest to droughts. So the message is simple. Climate action in Africa needs to be premised as a source of socioeconomic opportunity that put more money in more pockets, that put food on people's table, not a socially uh, driven silo uh, that um, doesn't uh, really take uh, uh, this dimension that I've explained. So it goes back to what I said, the narrative must change. And, and that is what I've been trying to do, even with the young people, to see through the lens of climate change opportunities for them to create their enterprises. And that takes me to the second point, which is very important, that to drive climate change, it must be driven from an enterprise dimension. So that means that focus must be on the sectors that Africa have got in abundance, which is clean energy, 365 days of sunshine, which means you can devise solutions like solar dryers that use the sun, to perform a miracle, in this case, drying food stuff that uh, families and communities have been losing as a result of harvest uh, losses. But at the same time, also focus in agriculture, but agriculture that is driven in a way that works with the environment, works with nature, not against nature. Uh, science shows us that when you use those natural approaches, uh, organic manure like our mothers use in villages, 
uh, actually... I couldn't hear um, what you were saying. I think we had a um, network problem, but you can continue. Yes, what was the last word you heard? You said the third one is... Yes, correct. Um, uh, uh, that's, that's great. I said the third aspect has got to do within this climate change uh, reality. It's got to be finance because climate finance in the discussion uh, needs to be looked at not through the lens, not only through the lens of social financing, but to look at investment financing where target is to, uh, if a youth is developing a solar dryer that helps a mother in a village add food, that is an enterprising action. Uh, and and, and uh, financing should uh, target to empower and invest in such initiatives. And for this to ensure low risk at the same time that the continent needs to prioritize leveraging on what they've got in abundance, which is the cooperative structures. Because every community have got a cooperative structure and if it is leveraged as a framework of low risk financing of innovative enterprises driven by the informal sector, that constitutes um, over 80% of the jobs that are created, are created by this sector, uh, this becomes a very powerful opportunity. So what's my point overall here is the narrative of climate action needs to change within the continent. And it must be premised as a solution to socioeconomic challenges and also as an investment opportunity. That is the only way Africa can turn the changing climate challenge into an opportunity. Yeah. Again, it's it's a shame we had a, um, uh, a, I guess, a network issue because there was a, a bit in, in the discussion where we couldn't hear you for a few seconds and then you came back. But the response you've given so far is clear and loud and it is no longer acceptable that we we sit back and, and wait for something to be done for us, especially with the burden youth population. And that is why actually I'm... Um, I'm really impressed with how you're, I guess, taking advantage of social media because I see what you do on online and African youths are seeing it and they seem to be engaging with you. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping as an African and someone that is very optimistic about the future of the continent that something radically different happens, that we start taking advantage of, of the opportunities that we have and not waiting for someone to do it for us. On that note, anyway. I have the last and final question, which is, finally, as the title of your book implies, how can innovative volunteerism help the African continent move forward? How can our youth, how can the African youth leverage this innovative volunteerism for a better continent? Thank you um, again, Dr. Efi. This is a very crucial question because then it's some sort of um, my thinking uh, when I started to pen the ideas that you find in that book. The reality is this. In Africa, by virtue of culture and conditioning, uh, we tend to grow up in a disempowerment environment. That is a fact. We tend to grow up with a mentality that someone else has got to do something for us, have got to solve our problem. And that has actually been very destructive. And it's something that I don't see discussed a lot. Um, and I don't know the reason. Maybe it's just because we want to be dealing with symptoms and not actually digging into the causes. Because if you do not understand the cause, you can never really provide a solution that can counter what actually caused the problem. So this growing up with the culture and conditioning that someone 
have to do something for us, have disempowered the continent most of the people in the corner, more so the young people, which is that we grow up thinking that others are meant to solve the challenges we see. We are not meant, we are not meant to realize that these challenges represent these guys' opportunities for those who devise solutions, that these challenges are a call to action for us to lead in devising solutions to them. And this is why we see that most of those with a certificate feel entitled to a job, not empowered, with a responsibility to solve challenges around uh, them that touch many. And this is why we see that most of those with jobs do just the bare minimum uh, to enable them to get uh, their next paycheck and avoid uh, being sacked. Uh, they do not work selflessly sometimes, uh, looking at the many lives out there that could be impacted by uh, the work that they do. Uh, like what you're doing here, um, uh, Dr. Ify, you, you, this platform with you and your colleague, you, you're passing a message to millions, and this is selflessness, and this is what everybody must see beyond what they do as a job anywhere. So the point I am making is that when you look at this kind of attitude and culture and the, con the conditioning mindset that, that someone has to do something for one another, dependency of overshadow logic, entitlement have overshadowed logic and therefore innovative volunteerism is changing this narrative uh, as i shared before from waste recovery for example to domestic energy to biofertilizer simple things that young people are doing uh, we are seeing from every corner of the continent youth and the young at heart of diverse areas of training retooling their skills and structurally guided to offer these value-added solutions that can touch many lives. So innovative volunteerism is, it is inspiring you to know that the solutions to challenges do not necessarily need money, but a willingness and selflessness to apply what one already has to offer solutions that touch many lives. And you keep hearing me using the word willingness because the reality is that you cannot force an unwilling horse to drink water even if you take it to a stream. That adage we know, we grow, grow up hearing that. But the reality is, when someone is willing and passionate, it is very easy for that, for him or her, to engage and learn a skill that can touch many lives. Because passion is the new currency of now, as I call it. That just a simple training and collaborating and selflessly working to solve a problem is already an opportunity for earning in the market while doing what touches many lives. That's the logic of innovative volunteerism. But the big point of innovative volunteerism is that it is a tool, a mindset change tool that inspires people to voluntarily and selflessly apply themselves, avail themselves. As I said earlier, the biggest ability of any human being is their availability. So anyone who avails themselves and voluntarily and selflessly apply themselves for a cause that solves a problem, and enriches them in the long run is the essence of innovative volunteerism, a tool that shows that certificates are not just for show or an entitlement to a job, but a responsibility to be a solution provider. So in a nutshell, like the title of the book indicates, the word power. But if you look at the title of the book, it is making Africa work through the power of innovative volunteerism. And that power is used intentionally in the title. That power refers to the people. It refers to the people of the continent. Just as we know that human capital is four times the value of produced capital and 15 times the value of natural capital, innovative volunteerism is bringing to the fore this 
most sovereign capital, this most sovereign asset for Africa's progress, its people, especially her young people. It is showing that the power we seek is in us. It is embodied in the diverse talents we hold and, and, and endowed by our creator with different abilities and capacities. And that what we need to unleash the talents is selflessness, willingness to do something that is bigger than us, to seek to use what we already have, to solve challenges in a way that touches many lives. And we know that we are in a continent of adversity. Yes, we know. But this adversity actually presents opportunities in disguise. And because we are in a continent of adversity, we know that necessity is the mother of invention. So Africa's challenges should birth in each and every one of us this necessity for innovation, not powerlessness. Because we can never afford the luxury of feeling powerless. We must face the moment with hope and optimism. And as I say, we need to become stubborn optimists, stubborn optimism, stubborn opportunism. It's what we must all do, where we get moving to devise solutions with what we already have, driven by purposefulness to touch many. And this is the enterprising Africa we need, which is already happening a bit small steps, but it's happening across the continent thanks to innovative volunteerism. And if everyone embraces innovative volunteerism and integrate in his own way to leverage on whatever thing he's doing, he or she is doing, and we all put our hands together, then we can be able to bend the act of history towards progress and ensure that Africa actually becomes the continent where no one ever experiences the fear of want or need. Thank you. Um, it's Well, thank you so much. I couldn't have actually put it any better. Um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sort of being selfless and in discussing the ideas in your book and also presenting practical ideas on how African youths and Africans in general can contribute to the positive change that we know that we need. I wonder if you have um, any any pattern words for our audience in terms of any words for the Africans and the many African youth, I hope, that will be listening to you if you have a final word for them. Yeah, th thank you very much, uh, Dr. Ifi. I think um, this is uh, a, a very important uh, time, not just for Africa, uh, but for the entire world. Uh, we are living in... Uh, times of uncertainty, uh, COVID-19 have undoubtedly affected everyone across the world. Uh, it's affected everyone, uh, including every African. And what this has shown is the precarious society in which we live in. And what is proven is proven that if you actually externalize your solutions, you will face the biggest shock more than any other continent or country. That externalization of solutions is the biggest risk. But when you internalize your solutions, and internalization of solutions need to be about people. The biggest investment is people. But the first person to invest in people is yourself. You must invest in yourself first before you can be of value to society. And that value becomes important because what makes each and every one of God's creation important is not where he or she comes from. And I've argued this so many times. What makes us important 
it's not because we are Africans. There's really nothing that makes an African special. What makes anyone special, including Africans, is what each and everyone can bring to the table. And what you bring to the table is not how you look, how tall you are, how the, the light skin, dark skin you are, no. Value. And value is cultivated. Value is built. Value passed through pain. It passed through struggle. Value is built through enduring pain, through making sure that you put in dedication and effort. So no pain, no gain. And therefore, each and every one of us, regardless of where we come from, which family or which schools we went to, or which organization we worked in, it means nothing. We must be able to offer value. And to offer that value, will start to make a difference. Value that can turn a challenge into an opportunity. Value that can make us see ourselves as solution providers, not complainers in chief. Value that can help us start to change the narrative of our continent from adversity to opportunity rather than always allowing others to define our narrative. And when we are limping, nobody even talks about it. The narrative of Africa must change from Africa, an impoverished continent, to Africa, a land of opportunity, because Africa is too rich to be poor. Thank you. And um, a really great advice for everyone. And on that note, I, I would like to also say thank you to everyone. And do remember that we should, as, as Dr. Munang have advised, we should ensure that we are the ones that are defining our narrative rather than allowing others to do it for us. On that note, I'd like to say thank you so much for listening. And hopefully, Dr. Bel Habib will join us in the next episode. Take care and goodbye. <laughs>